Before we uh, dive into the message, I, I, I want to, I realized that I failed to mention a couple things that are coming up, and they're both on the same day. Saturday the 22nd, we're going to have our next men's breakfast at 8 a.m. So, uh, gentlemen, you are encouraged to come uh, for a time of fellowship, some good food. We'll have a sign-up thing pretty soon uh, with that. And then that afternoon, um, a sister in Christ from, from another congregation is organizing a prayer walk around Whalen Commons, and it's specifically for, um, they're praying for the students in all three schools here in Poolsville. And so I want to encourage you to be a part of that. You're going to walk around Whalen Commons seven times, just like uh, Joshua and the Israelites walked around Jericho seven times. You're going to be walking around Whalen Commons praying seven different prayers for the students and the schools here in Poolsville. So let me encourage you to be a part of that. That'll also be Saturday, the 22nd at one o'clock. So men's breakfast, 8 a.m., by the time we get all cleaned up, you can go home, mow your grass, come back, and pray at Wayland Commons and be a part of that. Um, but as we get into the word of the Lord, I, mean, I need to ask you, do you have a will? Do you have, you don't need to show hands. I hear that question almost every week on some of the podcasts and radio programs that I listen to, which tells you what kind of podcasts I kind of listen to. And you'd think that hearing that question every week would be a good reminder to me to get mine updated. And I seem to start it and then stop. I get to that really funny part where you have to determine an executor and who's going to take care of the kids. And that's where I stall. Everything else is ready. It's just those parts I've got to work on. But I think it's interesting. Nobody really likes to talk about our end or our departure, and yet death is inevitable. Unless Jesus returns before we breathe our final breaths, death will come to us all. Now, I'm not trying to be depressing. After all, this is Sunday morning. I want us to have hope. Jesus rose from the grave. That's why we call it Sunday. The sun rose, resurrection day. And yet there's something that is comforting and reassuring, ironically, about knowing that we will all die. How is that comforting and reassuring? It's just, it's sure. It's there. And I believe in God's word. He's given us a confidence and hope so that we don't, need to fear death. Now, for most of us, we may not have any idea when death is going to come. It may happen today or tomorrow randomly, and so we need to be ready and prepared. And, and yet there are times when people have an idea that death is on the horizon. People who'd, who've suffered with chronic or terminal illness know that eventually that may be sooner rather than later. My stepdad was one of those guys. He had a very long bout with various forms of cancer, and, and as his battle, he knew his battle was coming to an end. He, uh, he and my mom got together and made some very difficult decisions. They decided to sell some stuff. They decided to replace other things. They, they worked to get things ready so that he could leave in confidence knowing that she'd be all right. And in many ways, it was, it was an act of love. And then I was so grateful that, you know, a couple weeks after he passed, I was sitting down at their, my, my mom's dining room table opening this envelope, opening this folder that had all of the proper documents. He had prepared this act of love for her so that she would know exactly what needed to be done. And I think that um, 
you know, for my mom, it brought her through a, a, that really a very difficult season. And I think that as I bring that up because I think that as we dive back into our study in the book of John, we find ourselves in a place like that that we could really call Jesus' last will and testament. In John chapter 14, if you want to open your Bibles and have them there, we aren't going to have any um, things on the screen, so the verses won't be there. So unless you're looking on your phone or in the Pew Bible in front of you, which is on page, um, oh, I had it. Oh, 763. Oh, it's up there because Steve is so good. Um, so we're going to be in John chapter 14. And while we are going to be there, we're going to go before and after it. So make sure you have something that you can look at. And if you'll notice in your, in your outlines or in your bulletins, there, are, there is no outline. So you can take notes however you want. If you want to doodle, you can do that. Um, but hopefully we'll, we'll walk through this and, and in a way that is, helps us understand really what Jesus is getting at. Because if you remember, when we were last in the book of John about five weeks ago, Jesus was at, this is the night before he was crucified, he was sharing a final supper with his disciples, and he had, wa- he had just washed their feet. He had gone through this very um, humiliating process culturally for them. They're having this meal, and he, in John, from about the middle of chapter 13 all the way to John 16, is what we could consider his farewell discourse or his last will and testament. It's his opportunity to tell his disciples, hey, here's what you can expect. Here's what I'm going to do, and here's what you will receive. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about today as we walk through this first part of his last will and testament. So firstly, what the disciples can expect, what they can expect that's going to happen shortly. And, and um, because I think this is something that any will should include. The, the life is going to be different, right? On the other side of, of death, life for those who are surviving is different. And so Jesus is helping them understand that. So the first thing he tells them to expect is that he is leaving. Look actually in your Bibles up at uh, John 13, 33. We looked at this briefly last time, but he says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's essentially telling them, hey, I'm going to go away. I'm leaving. And it's a little unclear as to whether Jesus is talking about the cross or if he's talking about his ascension, which happened about 40 days after the cross. But he also tells them, he doesn't just tell them, I'm leaving, but he tells them, I'm leaving to go and prepare a place for you. Look in uh, chapter 14, verse 2. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? For you. Now, if you're reading from the King James Version or maybe New King James, you might have a different translation there. That word rooms in those translations would say mansions. And so I want us to think a little bit about that because a lot of times, you know, we, we look at this and we say, oh, Jesus is going and preparing a mansion for us. I mean, wouldn't we all just love a big mansion? But what does it say? Let's look a little more closely. You see, we imagine grand habitations that dwarf the greatest palaces here. If you've ever been to the French countryside and seen some of these massive homes, or you just go over to McLean, Virginia, and you can see them there as well. But in the Greek, he refers to dwelling places, residences. 
Jesus says that there are already many rooms in the Father's house. There are already many places, and yet Jesus is going to prepare a place for his disciples. So does this mean that Jesus is going and preparing the furniture, that he's choosing the colors, that he's picking the bedspread that's going to be there? Is he assembling that? Is he um, pulling contracts and permits to make sure that everything is legit when we get there? And then we think, you know, it took God six days to create the universe, And Jesus has been working on our place for 2,000 years. Man, that must be an amazing place. But I don't think that's what he's getting at. I don't think that's what, I don't think Jesus is trying to get us to focus on what that room, what that dwelling place will be like. So it kind of begs the question, how is this preparation going to happen? How is Jesus preparing this place? And I think it's a very simple answer, and that is through the cross. Jesus, in the moment that he died on the cross, made a way for us to be there. So let me explain what, I'm, what, I, what I mean by this. If we were to reflect on the holiness of God, and we sang a little bit about that this morning, but if we were to reflect on the holiness of God, God is so holy and different than we are. He is distinct. In fact, the Bible talks about the fact that there is no sin allowed near God. And so in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were walking through the wilderness, they would set up a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, there was a big wall of canvas or wall of tenting around a central space, a central tent. And in that tent, there was another room that only certain people could go in one time a year. It was called the Holy of Holies. And the idea was that the presence of God was there and that we couldn't, commoners couldn't go there. Well, they replicated that when they built the temple. And so they built these big, massive stone walls, and they had this gorgeous facade inside. And then go inside, and you have this this ark, this box that contains the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant between God and, and Israel. And yet again, there was this curtain dividing the holy place from the most holy place. And only once a year could someone go in there. Well, when Jesus died, When Jesus died, the book of Matthew tells us that in that moment when he died, that veil was torn in two, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom, meaning that now we could have access to God. We could be in a relationship with God. And so, and, and what is the word that Jesus said on the cross right before he died? It is finished. I think that in that moment when that veil was torn, I think that's when our rooms were prepared, our dwelling places. So now as we come to him by faith, it's, he's, there's a place waiting for us. But I think there's more than that. You see, um, Jesus continues in his discourse when he says in John 14, 4, he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. You know how to get there. And Thomas, being ever so faith-filled, right? Look at verse 5. John 14, 5, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus replies, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
You see, it seems Thomas was looking for a destination. Thomas was looking for a roadmap. Thomas was looking for a to-do list. This is what we must do to go there. This is how we get there. This is, we need the right wagon. We need the right horse. We need the right list of things. And yet Jesus says, I am the destination. I am the path. I am the map. I am the way to get to the Father. And, and I don't, you know, so often we think about heaven and eternal life with Western American consumeristic eyes. It's easy to look at it. We might read mansions in the King James or the New King James and think, wow, I'll have a better home than the one I have on White's Road. And that's not what Jesus is getting at. You see, it's not about the place. It's about the person. It's about the one we get to be with. It's about that one that we get to dwell with for eternity. In fact, in John chapter 1, when we began this whole study, John essentially says, and he came and tabernacled or dwelled with us. And the whole idea is he dwelled with us so that, so that he could make a way for us to then dwell with him because by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, now we have access to the Father. This week as I was preparing this, there was a song that I don't know very well, but you, you have those, uh, Nancy, you and I have talked about this before, those songs that just noodle their way through your head. You know, it just you can't get it out of your head. And sometimes they're really good songs and sometimes they're really bad songs. This one was a good song. And the chorus to this song simply says, Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. And I, and I think, you know, are, really, are we asking the question, are we looking forward to heaven because of all the stuff that we hope might be there? Or are we looking forward to heaven because of the Savior that's going to welcome us with open arms? I think we need to get to that point. And I think that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Look, I am the way to where, I am the means by which you get to eternal life. I'm going there to prepare a place and I'm going to come again and take you to be with me. In his sacrificial work on the cross, Jesus breaks the dividing line between us and God so that we can have a relationship with him. And in doing so, he prepares a place for us. But there's another thing uh, that Jesus does in his last will and testament, not only in, in, his, in this section of what Jesus, what the disciples can expect, not only is he leaving, but Jesus will return. And we see this in verse 2. He's going to bring them to be with him. And it seems that Jesus' point is not only is there a place for us made available through the cross, but that he is the reward and joy. We will get to be with him. So Jesus helps his, his disciples understand that he is going to prepare a place and will return, which means that his death, which is going to happen the next day, and his departure, which will happen about 42 days, 43 days later, is not final, which means that we can have hope again. 
And so in addition to letting his disciples know what to expect, Jesus places some expectations on his disciples. Back in the 80s, there was this really cute, uh, well, I don't know, sort of cute baseball movie called Brewster's Millions. Did anybody see that back in the day? Yeah, some of you guys, I sort of saw it. Brewster's Millions, it actually stemmed from a, a book that came out in the early 1900s. And I found out yesterday that this is the seventh movie that was written about that same thing. But here's the thing. Brewster was this baseball player, and he had a very wealthy uncle who had bequeathed him. How's that for a big word? He had given him a will, and he said, you must spend $3 million in the next 30 days. You can have nothing to show for it. You can't give away more than a certain percentage of it. I want you to just spend this lavishly so that money stinks to you. And if you do that, at the end of 30 days, you'll get $30 million. By the end, of the, the end of the time, he didn't want the money, but he did it anyways, and he got through. And so Jesus, just, just as, you know, some guys, Jesus doesn't make wacky expectations of us in his will. He does want us to do something. In fact, if you look in, in chapter 13, verse 34, here's the first thing that Jesus expects of his disciples, because, and, and it is essentially this, to love one another. Jesus says, a, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And over the course of this whole discourse, over the next couple of chapters, we'll see that theme come back time and time again. Because he really wants his disciples, wants us, I believe, to get it that we need to love one another. That seems like a simple enough command to love. And yet when you look at the qualifier he places in there, what does he say? As I have loved you. How did Jesus love? When, we, when, we, when you think about the fact that he left the glories of heaven, he left presence, oneness, unity right there with the Father to come on and put, as some people say, an earth suit or a dirt bag as a body so that he could be like us. He could dwell with us. He could experience the life that we get to have. He lived a holy life in front of us. So he, he sacrificed. He, he went out of his way to be a part of our life here so that he could show us how to live and then so that he could give us eternal life, so that he could lay his life down as a sacrifice, paying for all eternity as a propitiation for our sin. Ultimately, Jesus sacrificed his life for us. So then it begs the question, how are we showing that kind of love for one another? Are we doing it on our terms? I'll love you only when it's convenient for me. Or are we doing it sacrificially when it's inconvenient? Are we doing it only when our preferences are met? Or are we doing it for the sake of others? But in addition to charging his disciples to love one another, he expects them to believe in him. And, and in the passage we, that Dan read earlier, we see this in a few different places. But look in verse 1. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Or some 
section say, you believe or you already believe in God, believe also in me. Some people will say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. Or, or they'll actually turn that around and they say, I believe in Jesus. He's pretty cool. He's just a good teacher, good man. But God, uh. and so Jesus is telling you, it needs to be both. It needs to be one because they are one. It's in that belief that entrusting our lives to his that demonstrates confirmation that Jesus is able to do what he says he will do. He is able to prepare a place for us. He is able to reconcile himself, reconcile us to God. Look down in verse, verses 6 and 7. Jesus, we already read this before, but Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We've already seen that Jesus is the way to the Father. He's the truth about the Father, and he's the means of life in the Father. It is through Jesus. Knowledge of Jesus is knowledge about the Father. But Jesus also calls us to believe in him because he is one with the Father, not like that guy from uh, one of those Star Wars movies, I am one with the Force, the Force is one with me, I am one with the Force. No, it's not like some mystical thing, but Jesus and the Father are one. So Philip chimes in and he says, Jesus, show us the Father and it's going to be enough. If I could just see him, oh, that would be great. It kind of brings us back to Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, when Moses tells God, when he says, show me your glory. I wonder if Philip is trying to have a Moses kind of moment. And Jesus answers in verses 9 and 10. He said, I have, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. You see, Jesus reveals the Father to us in their unity or their oneness. Jesus helps us to understand the heart of the Father. And then look down in verse 11. Jesus says, believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You see, I think Jesus is calling, calling the disciples and he's calling us to look back on the things that he's done. We can look at the normal things, the, the, the human kinds of things, the way he lived, the fact that he came to be a part of us. But then we could look at the miraculous things, the things that John calls signs. We could look at the, the way that he turned water into wine, feeding the 5,000, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, raising the dead. And it really begs the question, who but God can do these things? So that Jesus, it's almost like he's calling the disciples to connect these dots and, and say, well, God can do that and Jesus did that, so Jesus must be God. And friend, I want to encourage you, if maybe you've been interested in Jesus, maybe you've been curious about his teaching, maybe you've been a little bit skeptical about his miracles, or maybe even amazed. But I think just as Jesus is calling the disciples to connect these dots, I believe he's calling you and me to do the same. Is Jesus just a good teacher? 
or is he more? I believe Jesus is more. Will you put your faith and trust in him? So Jesus calls his disciples to believe as they consider the works. But then he goes on to place one other expectation on his disciples, and that is that they will do greater works or that greater works might happen. Look down in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 14. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So a lot of people, scholars, people who are way smarter than I am, have debated what exactly Jesus is talking about here. And we don't have time to go through all the various things, and I'm not sure it would be very helpful. But I want us just to think about a couple things. A lot, some people have suggested maybe Jesus is talking about a greater number of things. He only did so many miracles. He only did a few things. Maybe after Jesus goes to the Father, the fact that Jesus, when they were with him, remember, they were following him everywhere. We talked several weeks ago about being dusty disciples. They would follow closely so they could take on whatever he was doing so the dust of the rabbi would get on them. So while they were together, they were geographically limited. They would move around, and as long as Jesus was there. So some people have assumed that once Jesus goes and, he, and they've been sent out, now they get to go and do all these things, a greater number of things. But Don Carson in his commentary basically says, you know, there are better ways in Greek to communicate a greater number. But he suggests that maybe Jesus is talking about a greater impact. You see, if you think about it, if we look at the cross as being this central figure, this central moment in all of history, everything leading up to the cross was speculation. Is this person the one? And, and we learned about that before. There's a lot of Messiah fever happening in the first century. People are wondering, is this the guy? Is it the, they, because Daniel had given them a timeline. Daniel had said, hey, this is going to happen about then. So there's all these questions and questions and wondering what's happening, what's happening. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts doing all of these signs to get people saying, oh, could he be? Well, then he died on the cross. Hopes dashed. Despair. And then he rose from the grave. So what people were looking forward to, hoping that something might happen... Now we get to look back to in confidence that it did happen. So we get to have this greater impact to some degree as we go and share the gospel, as we help people see the good news that Jesus came to be the sin for us so that we might have a relationship with God, that greater impact, greater, more, sort of more people believing, but more people given the opportunity to believe. I actually have a quote here from Carson, but it, it would be, it's, he's very smart. And smart people use big words, and I have a hard time reading it, so I'm going I'm to skip it. But you, you get the point. If, if, we're looking, if the disciples are looking forward to something, it was speculation until they got to the other side of the resurrection. And now they're saying, oh, 
This Jesus who God sent died on the cross and rose from the grave. He is the one in whom we have eternal life. Will you believe? So now we get to look back on that and have a greater impact in the world. So Jesus expects his disciples to love one another, to believe in him, and to work. And yet just as every last will and testament might define some provisions, so too Jesus shares with the disciples, he shares what the disciples will receive from him. And it seems like there are three things in this section that Jesus does. The the rest of the farewell discourse, the next three chapters, really outline a few more things, but let's just look at a couple things. One is Jesus says that they will receive comfort. And and in many ways, this is because of who he is. And we see that in in verse 1. He knows their hearts are troubled. In fact, he points back to that several different times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be discouraged. Be not dismayed. And he comes back and he wants to encourage them, to give them strength and comfort. He knows they are concerned And yet he encourages them to trust him. Beloved, in any circumstance that we're facing, I hope that we can find comfort in knowing that Jesus has given us hope. There is hope beyond the grave. There is hope beyond despair. There is hope in the midst of the trials that God allows us to face. Let not your hearts be troubled. Turn to him. Trust in him. And then if you need or want help, ask a friend, a brother or sister in Christ who can come alongside, pray with you, listen to you, cry with you, so that we might be hope, that comfort together. But in addition to comfort, Jesus says he will give them hope because he will return. Sure, he's going to leave and that'll be sad, but he's coming again. He's returning because he has that eternal dwelling for us. We don't have to fear death, and there's an eternal reward awaiting us. But the final thing that Jesus says that he will give his disciples is the Holy Spirit. And we're going to get to that more next week because the next section really talks about that. But look down in verses 16 and 17. This is outside of the the scope that, that Dan read. But in verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus describes the spirit as a helper or in other places he's referred to as a counselor. Not not like a psychotherapeutic counselor but as a legal counselor, an advocate the Holy Spirit comes alongside to help us, to, to, give, to guide. And in fact, later on, we see that the Spirit is there to convict of, of, of sin and righteousness and judgment. But because the Spirit is with us, we are not alone. God is with us, indwelling us with His Spirit. And in the coming weeks, we'll unpack that a little bit more. But as we close, let's briefly consider what this means for us. I think, first of all, we need to find contentment, delight, enjoyment, and satisfaction in Jesus. Is Christ enough? Are we looking for the handouts? Or are we looking for those nail-scarred hands that redeemed us? 
Secondly, I think we need to love the way that Jesus loved, even when it's difficult and painful, even when it's inconvenient. And we could truly spend the whole time just meditating on what that means to love the way that Jesus loved. But finally, we get to continue to proclaim the hope that we have because of the cross of Christ. He conquered our sin and death. He rose from the grave in the hope that we have for eternity. Yeah, it's gonna, it was a sad day for the disciples when Jesus left. But boy, what a glorious day that will be when he returns to bring us to be with him forever. And imagine, I imagine that no matter what we can think of here, that entering into his presence will be this awe-inspiring experience. And I bet we're going to get there and not think, oh, Jesus, I was hoping for a bigger house. I was hoping for a few more toys. I used to imagine when I was a kid playing football on grass of gold. Throwing a gold football, a solid gold football, would be a little painful. But we're going to have heavenly bodies, so we won't worry about it. I don't think we're going to be concerned with any of that because I think we're going to get there and we're going to be like, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, let me just spend time with you, Jesus. Oh, what a day that will be. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. Thank you for redeeming us, for giving us life and hope. Lord, help us this side of your return to love the way that you love, to honor you. Help us to be people filled with hope. Help us to proclaim your goodness until you come again in Jesus' name.